0: Welcome to episode 15 of the VMAs podcast, where we'll be discussing the second book of Psalms, which consists of chapters 42 through 72. My name is Anton Brooks, and I'm here with David Schrock, the pastor of preaching and theology here at Aquaquam Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. So David, can you give us an overview of the second book of Psalms?
1: Yeah, so we have talked a couple times through here of how the Psalms have a literary arrangement to them. Mm-hmm. Um Five books. Each of the books end with a doxology, and the different themes in each of the books. So, book two is the second book that's dealing with the historical life of David. Uh, just as book one begins with David uh, lamenting and longing for God to come and rescue him, and then it leads a path from kind of suffering to his exaltation to his. Um, enthronement as king, that's where it picks up in book two. Uh, In fact, the very beginning seems to be picking up this enthronement language of David, Mm -hmm. uh, and then through his life until his death, uh, until his son is then raised on the throne. So just for instance, um, Psalm 71, one of the ways that we see how this uh, life of David is played out, is in Psalm 71, at the very end, uh, it says in verse 17, O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and grey hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who come. All right, so it's talking about the very end of David's life here, mm-hmm. and striking that it's at this place in Book Two, and then the next book is the Psalm of Solomon or maybe the song for Solomon uh, as David praised this for his son. So as we look through the book, we can see that the first seven Psalms from Psalm 42 to 49 are the Psalms of Korah. Then that's followed by one Psalm of Asaph and three Psalms of David. And then from Psalm 54 to 70, or 67, we have 14 Psalms of David. Uh, which is David's number, right? right? So we add up the letters of David's name of Dalet, Vav, and Dalet, or D and V and D. It's 4 plus 6 plus 4 is 14, Mm. right? So there's structuring that goes on there. And then strikingly, there are three more David Psalms at the end with one psalm for Solomon. And as we walk through this, we can see, for instance, that in Psalm 51, David's psalm where he sins with Bathsheba is notated there in Psalm 51. And then again, after David's high point and all these Zion psalms that are there in the 40s and just the glory of God coming into Zion and Jerusalem, Now we see from Psalm 54 to 67 a way in which David's life is on the ropes again. His enemies have returned. And yet God restores him just as he did in the life of David with Absalom and then coming back into the city and God establishing his kingdom once and for all and then leading to Solomon. So in this way, we can see how the Psalms are following the storyline of David's life. From his coronation as king, to its downfall with Bathsheba, and then to its greater glory with Solomon by Psalm 72.
0: So you mentioned the first seven Psalms, uh, 42 through 49, and the introduction of the sons of Korah. Their names stand at the head of the seven Psalms. Who are these men?
1: Yeah, so again, if you're just counting, 42 through 49 is actually eight Psalms. That's right. Uh, But 42 and 43 should be read together. Right, so there's no uh, superscription at the end or at the top of 43. Uh, and there is a refrain that goes from chapter 42 or Psalm 42 through uh, Psalm 43. So there's probably those together. And when we do, we have seven mm-hmm. from the sons of Korah. And Korah, of course, is that name that comes from number 16. Uh, this man who led a rebellion, uh, he was a Levite and he wanted to have the place of a priest. So oftentimes we think Levites and priests are the same, right? Right. No, actually the priests were the sons of Aaron and the Levites came and were added to them. And this Levite wanted to have the same presence of the same place with God in in his presence. And God rebuked him. God withheld him from that. And um, the sons of Korah, then we see are his descendants who are people of grace, they should have died uh, with their father, Korah, in this rebellion, and that God preserved their line. And now these Levites are doing what their father didn't do. Right? They are obediently uh, glorifying uh, God by singing songs and writing songs in this place, not in at the altar, but around the doorposts and around the gates and around the places on the outside, singing praise to God as the people of God would come into worship there in the temple. And so I think these sons of Korah then, it's a reminder of God's grace on their life and their role as Levitical singers, as you talked about in our Numbers episode, they're the Levitical singers who are writing songs for worship in the house of God.
0: So last time we talked about how the Psalms provided a systematic theology of doctrine. In Psalm 51, we find one of the most important passages about sin and forgiveness in the Bible. For instance, verses 3 through 6 read, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. What can we take away from this passage about the doctrine of sin and forgiveness?
1: Yes. Yeah, so and these verses that you read certainly remind us of original sin, mm. right? The, the reality that uh, we are not sinners because we sin, we sin because we are by nature sinners. Right? Yeah. Right? I mean, Paul use the language that we are objects of wrath by our very nature. When Adam and Eve uh, sinned and were put outside of the garden, all of their children in their very nature are now enemies and rebels of God. And I think that's what David is getting at here. He's recognizing that uh, it was not his conception that was sinful. Some have taken uh, this passage to mean that in the past. Rather, that when he was born, he was uh, in his human nature fallen, and therefore the sins that have come out in his life are part of that fallen nature. Right? But of course, that's not the only thing that is said in Psalm 51, uh, because he goes on to confess his sin before the Lord mm-hmm. and to remind us that God does not turn away from a broken and contrite heart, that when we come confessing our sin to God, God has made a way of, of sacrifice for us. He's made a way of forgiveness for us. Uh, so there's great hope here. In fact, Psalm 51 is perhaps one of the most important psalms for Christians today mm-hmm. uh, to express our sin before God. Um, that sins that are against other people, David will say, uh, "Against you alone have I sinned." Right? Ultimately, sin is always theological; it is always directed towards God. Um, and even if somebody else says, "Ah, it doesn't matter, whatever," uh, no, before God it does matter. Uh, and so we see that sin is a, a holy offense before a holy God.
0: When I think of this chapter, I think, of course, the story of Nathan, how he cleverly. <laughs> I say cleverly because David was the king, but how he cleverly got David to see his sin. Yeah. And the reason why I think about that is, is so often uh, as a Christian and when I'm talking to people, if we try to just point out somebody's sin to them um, in an accusatory or, you know, just inflammatory way or unloving way, mm-hmm. very often the defense mechanism goes up. Yep. And the reason or the purpose of the conversation to enlighten them or to help them mm-hmm. um, is lost because then we are acting on emotion versus um, the reality of truth. So we can lead them to their own conclusion, mm-hmm. you know, is what Nathan did. Yeah. <laughs> and you'll lead them to the own conclusion.
1: Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Because, again, it's not us who convicts others. Right. It's the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Right? And, you know, Paul will say in Romans 2 that it is the kindness— of God that leads us to repentance. So how in the world are we going to lead someone to even be considering that idea of repentance and confession of sin, if we're just being mean, Mm -hmm. and just kind of confronting people in that way? Yeah. Right. So again, I think it's helpful. I mean, to make the connection point that you did between Psalm 51 and the story of Nathan, right, comes from that superscription, Mm -hmm. right? We know that this Psalm is connected to what Nathan did because it's there. And when that happens in the Psalms, it helps us because we can see the historical events that are coming and we should read them right alongside what we find in the Psalms. Right, And what David does, or excuse me, what Nathan does in approaching Nathan uh, is a model for us. Right, exactly as you're saying, mm-hmm. right? to be able to not come directly at someone, but to help someone to see their sin. Because what is the condition of sin in our hearts, in our lives? Blindness. Pride. Pride. <laughs> yeah. We don't see it. Ego. Right? I mean, so there's often been a way that this is kind of the, the Puritan way to preach the gospel. Preach law. And then preach gospel, Mm -hmm. right? And yet I think there's something that we see here that sometimes we have to preach the goodness of God, the graciousness of God, the hope that is found in forgiveness of sins so that that person who is protecting themselves and hiding this sin is willing to come out in the open and to confess it. Mm-hmm. Right? If we can present God in His holiness, but also in His grace and His love, then when we are asked to confess, it's like this: these are the hands that we will fall into. The loving, nail-pierced hands of Christ are the hands that we will fall into when we come confessing our sins to Him.
0: Right. In line with the previous question about sin, uh, what kind of sacrifice can we give that will satisfy God for our sin?
1: Yeah, so again, if we just finish the Psalm 51, here are these verses that we come to at the end. Verse 16 says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it. Uh, you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So, what we learn here, and it's what's kind of echoed another place in the Old Testament, is that to obey is better than sacrifice, mm-hmm. right? That what God delights in is a heart that loves him, that obeys him, that trusts in him. And so those in the Old Testament period who are bringing sacrifices without a heart of faith, without a heart of contrition and repentance, it's like it's no good, right? He wants that heart. However, he doesn't deny the place of the sacrificial system that he placed in the law, Mm -hmm. How do we know that? Well, because we know that the very next thing that he says in verse 18 and 19 is do good design in your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, the whole burnt offerings. And then the bulls will be offered on your altar So, under the old covenant. It would be law-breaking to deny those sacrifices. Right. But you could go through the motions in a way that didn't have a true heart of faith either. Mm -hmm. So what he's saying here is come with a true heart and then offer these sacrifices. How do we apply it today? Well, today we know that there was one who perfectly obeyed the law, right. who obeyed, and in his obedience he merited the favor of God because he is perfectly righteous. So that when he offered himself up as a sacrifice, as a whole burnt offering, well, now that sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ, is pleasing to God, not because, uh, not because of, well, it was pleasing to God because of the fact that he perfectly obeyed the law, right? Right? And he obeyed, and that pleased God, and he obeyed to the point of death, which pleased God, and now God is pleased with us as we trust in him, mm-hmm. right? And as we trust in him, that his righteousness is given to us, and it gives us a heart as well that is going to be broken and contrite over our sin, that is going to fear God and love him. and all these ways, God has poured out his good pleasure upon us, on those who are in Christ,
0: there's nothing that we can do to rightly align ourselves with the father. That's what mm. Jesus came to do for, you know, on our behalf. And um, I think like one of the greatest sacrifices that we could do is die to ourself, you know, because that's the only thing that we really can do is die to ourself and allow Jesus to be our identity uh, and move forward in his, pre- in his law, in his way versus our own way.
1: Yeah, it's so good. I mean, because he tells us, Jesus does, to take up your cross and follow me. Right. To die in yourself, you to deny yourself. Paul speaks of a living sacrifice, right? That we are mm-hmm. to be a living sacrifice in these ways. Our mind's being renewed and serving others. And really, when we lay down our lives and lay down our desires for the good of others, right, that's what that living sacrifice looks like. And in this way, I think even Paul captures some really shocking language, right? Colossians one twenty four says that I have filled up what is lacking, in christ's afflictions Mm -hmm. and the first time we hear it's like lacking in christ's afflictions what are you talking about paul he's not talking about anything lacking in the merit of christ's death or the propitiation uh, for the wrath of god what he's talking about is the proclamation of the gospel what is lacking is that this knowledge of christ is not known To the ends of the earth. Mm -hmm. And so Paul is willing to sacrifice and to suffer so that the sacrifice of Christ would go to the ends of the earth, that knowledge of Christ would go to the ends of the earth. And lo and behold, actually in his suffering, he's also displaying what it is that Christ has done. And that way, it's also inviting people to come and to know the Savior. So there's a lot uh, to consider there.
0: Amen. When we look at Psalm 53, we have to ask the question, have we read these words before? it would seem that Psalm 14 and 53 are identical. So my question is, are these chapters identical, and Mm -hmm. why is there a a repetition?
1: Yeah, it's always a good question. Maybe they just didn't have a, you know, creativity this uh, week as they're trying to think (laughs) of a new song or something like that, and just going to play the old song. No, it is the same psalm, except the language of Yahweh and Elohim is different. So mm-hmm. Elohim is the word for God. So it's associated with creation in the beginning. Elohim is the God of all the nations. Uh, and Yahweh is the covenant name that is given to the, um, the people of Israel. right? And so what we see is that um, in Psalm 53, the language of uh, Elohim begins to be picked up. In fact, one of the unique uh, differences between book one and book two is the word Yahweh shows up 278 times in book one, Elohim 48 times. In book two, Yahweh shows up 32 times in Elohim 198.
0: Hmm.
1: See, how does that work? Well, I think what's happening is that in book one, it's moving towards this covenant relationship between David and Yahweh. And when that is established, now David is set over all the nations. Right. And we'll see this when we look at Psalm 72, that this kingdom is to spread to the ends of the earth, to all the nations. And so it's appropriate that the God of all creation is named as Elohim. Right. Right. And so I think there's some some reasons for that. And we wouldn't see it at first, but when we begin to see how the language of Yahweh and Elohim is being used between book one and book two, we see how David's rule is for all the nations. And in fact, that's the exact language of Second Samuel 7 verse 19. It talks about the covenant that God makes with David, that he is going to have a charter for all humanity, a Torah for all humanity, that he's going to be the king over all the nations, which of course isn't fulfilled in David or even Solomon, mm-hmm. but it will be in the son of David to come.
0: That's right. The last psalm to look at is Psalm 72. This is Solomon's psalm. Solomon is David's son. What might we learn from this psalm?
1: Yeah, so we just mentioned this with respect to David as having authority over all the nations. And it's worth uh, just maybe reading a little bit of the psalm itself. Right. So Psalm 72 verse 8 says, May he have dominion from sea to sea from the river to the ends of the earth may desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust may the kings of tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute may the kings of sheba and seba bring gifts may all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him all right so this language is uh, could be a song that Solomon is is writing or it could be the prayer that David has prayed for his son, right? This is a psalm for Solomon, Mm -hmm. right? And that he would have dominion over all of these things. As he reigns in righteousness, as he reigns in peace, he will then have dominion over all the earth. But of course we know Solomon starts well and finishes poorly and doesn't have this, right? But later, another son of David, uh, Jesus Christ comes, and even at his birth, Right? He is recognized as the king of the Jews. And we have kings from other nations coming and bringing tribute to him, mm. even there in Bethlehem. Right. So it seems that Psalm 72 begins to be fulfilled even in the life of David. Uh, and this is the prayer that we now pray today right? We pray that the kingdom of Christ would go from sea to sea. Mm -hmm. We pray that his name and his knowledge would be known by all the nations. We pray that his justice and his peace and his wisdom would rule over all creation. And so I think it's very appropriate that we could take this psalm that was prayed for a king, and we pray it for Jesus, and then we sit under and we worship him uh, as he rules above all things.
0: Finally, with so many of the Psalms focused on David, how should the New Testament follower of Christ think about these Psalms? Yeah,
1: so again, in Christ, these Psalms uh, are given to us, mm. right? As, even as we see in Psalm 72, these Psalms are moving towards Christ, and He is the fulfillment of all these things, and because we're in Him, these are our Psalms to be able to, to pray and to praise uh, as well. Um, so I think that's one thing. Uh, certainly allowing them to, to shape uh, the way we think about God, to see the storyline of the Bible being fulfilled uh, in Christ, and uh, that we would use them as a place of worship, of lament, of praise, and learning who God is in our daily devotion, uh, as well as in our public worship and assembly together.
0: Amen. This concludes today's discussion of the second book of Psalms. As you follow along with your reading plan, if you have any questions or comments that you would like us to discuss, please send them to via Emmaus at obc.org. You may hear a response in an upcoming episode. Via Emmaus is a podcast of Occoquan Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Our prayer is that you would read the Bible and read the Bible better. For more resources related to this
1: episode and the gospel Center ministry of God's Word, visit obc.org.